Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1224, with guest Robert Bodigheimer. Recorded Thursday, November 12th, 2015. Hey, 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 it's time for .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're here again, and for another hour, Robert Bodingheimer is here, and we're going to bring him back in, in a few minutes and talk to talk about HTTP2. But in the meantime, my friend, yes, it's uh, one of those days where we queue up four shows in a row. <laughs> yep. And this is the second of Of the queued four. one, but one of the last ones to come out of this block. This one's out in December. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome and to Time Shifting. Right, and the last one is going to be Tom Kirkov that we record, which will come out the week before this one. Right, so I think we'll be a little punchy. Welcome to Time Shift. I'm just thinking. Just saying, you're warning people, hey, remember that show last Thursday and you thought we seemed a little goofy? Here's why. Here's why. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that makes total sense. Hey, man, roll the crazy music because I got something fun for you. All right. <laughs> what do you got, dude? Well, there's a video chat company out there called Screen Hero that was recently bought by Slack. Oh, okay. If you go to slack.com slash screen hero and you have a basic um, subscription or a pro membership to Slack, you can actually take it for a test right now. Okay. Now, I have not done this yet. But I'll tell you guys, and by you guys, I mean you, Richard, and the wider .NET Rocks audience, and of mm -hmm. course, Robert, who's listening offline, about what I want. And I don't know if this is what I what what they have, but here's what I'd like. You know, think about the hackathon that happened, Richard. Yep. You get 20 to 100 people in one room, and managing that whole process sometimes takes one person going over and talking to either another person or yep. a group of people. And sometimes it's, um, you know, the whole room stands up or other times it's just different groups. So why are all of these messaging apps one to many, like many to many, and that's it. Here's what I want. I want a grid of people who are, who are engaged, but not, you know, on video, like their microphones are not on the cameras right. are on, but I want a grid of thumbnail videos and I just want to touch one and have it pop up and just have a little conversation. That person touch it pops back. I want to have a conference button and then I touch four or five and then the conference button again, and then they all pop up. And now I'm just having conversation with these people. Everybody else 
isn't listening to me because they're working. I don't want to bother them. Yeah, yeah. Trying to minimize interruption. So I don't know if this workflow exists out there. Maybe there's an alert listener who can tell me this or somebody wants to, I don't know, build it. That would be great. But, <laughs> but this seems to me like a really good workflow for handling, for dealing with remote teams. Sure. I absolutely. Mean, it, yeah. If you wanted to do a, a hackathon, the big problem right now is staying engaged. And, and the other problem on the other side of it is too much engagement. Leave mm-hmm. me alone. I'm working. Right. Yeah, time to focus. Yeah. I don't want to listen in on the conversations happening across the other side of the room. Yeah. Just bo- just bother me when you need to bother me. Right. So there you go. That's my yeah, thought. Okay. That's cool, Steve. But in the meantime, we shall check out slack.com slash screen hero and see if, uh, see if it comes close to my vision. Yep. Well, so, and I've got nothing bad to say about Slack. We've been using it a lot at Humanitarian Toolbox and, uh, it is, it is served well. Yep. It's well done. And I use Slack and AppVNext as well. Great tool. Absolutely. All right, man. Who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1121. This is a show we did at the Nebraska Code Camp. It was a panel discussion about web development in the Microsoft stack and included Mads Christensen, uh, our friend, um, Lee Brandt, Josh right. Bronton, and Robert Bodeheimer. Oddly enough. Surprise. Uh, And this comment comes from David McGarry, who says, Hi, I love your shows, and it makes a long commute bearable. However, this show made me sad when the guest said I couldn't work with ASP.NET vNext because I'm a VB developer. Mm. I think this could be an issue, not because I don't like C Sharp, but because the other 20 VB.NET developers on the team, I've enjoyed VB over the past... 20 years and basic for almost 35 years. My joke is English is not my native language. Basic is mm. to the extent that I thought go to was an English word and was confused when my teacher took points off in second grade. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I do know over 10 other programming languages. It's just that my first real job was in VB4 where I was building a 32 bit server against a 16 bit client, mm-hmm. which is really using VB4. Yeah. I think the real issue is that most VB.net is in the corporate space and does not allow for feedback to be sent to Microsoft or to start new projects. They just keep adding on to existing projects. The code base I work with was designed pre.net 2.0, and it sometimes feels like it, even though we are running against .net 4.5. On the other hand, my last project I started, I could not even start the project with Visual Basic in Studio. I had to pick a generic project and modify it to be VB. To say we aren't doing cutting edge isn't fair because I'm using Web API, Razor, Angular, and hosting on Owen with Katana. Even security is using web tokens. Just imagine that this is all in Visual Basic and JavaScript. Mm-hmm. I did read a post that gives me hope, and he references the the, the post, which is, and in some ways, is kind of an unfair comment because the this show and these comments happened in that window. It wasn't so much ASP.NET not supporting VB.NET as in the Roslyn compiler, the complete change to compilation in .NET was in flux at that moment. Right. And a bunch of stuff hadn't been implemented VB.NET. Most of this is fixed now. Yep. Right? VB.NET is a full citizen again. But it is interesting to me, and one of the reasons I read this comment is, you know, back to time shifting, a few weeks ago, we were at the MVP summit. Right. And then, and I ended up in a conversation with a bunch of the language guys at Microsoft about VB.net and they made me abundantly aware that they know that VB.net is alive and well in larger organizations mm-hmm. 
and uh, the language is plenty busy. And while they may not have implemented it as fast as some people like, there is no inclination to decrease support for VB.net right. whatsoever. Right. They are working on it all the time because they know their customers are using it. Right. So I wanted to say to David, like, don't worry, dude. Yep. They know. And uh, in some ways, I feel like we need to do a better job on this show of giving VB.net the love it deserves. Absolutely. And, you know, that's that's our roots, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Both you and yeah. I were VBNet developers and VB before that. We sweated over the 32-bit migration that was all about VB4. You know, we were there. VBX to OCX, all of that pain. All of it. <laughs> VB10, that's where I started with yeah, VB. Yeah, that's true. Know. David. Thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of the social medias. We post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there, we read it on the show. We'll send you a mug. And, of course, we're tweeting all the time. Richard's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Go ahead. What have you got to lose? And uh, that brings us to Robert Bodeheimer, and he works for Schwann's Shared Services, LLC, providing business solutions with web technologies. Robert has been developing websites for the past 20 or so years. He's an ASP.NET MVP, a Pluralsight author, and a third-degree black belt in Taekwondo. Don't mess with Robert. <laughs> <coughs> he regularly speaks at national and international events. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's good to be back. What's changed since April in Nebraska? <laughs> What's changed since April? Lots of stuff. It's colder. Yeah, it's true. I'm in I Minnesota really enjoyed uh, being out there, being in Nebraska. We had a great, great time. Nice bunch of people. Sure did. You know, we we promised that we'd come back for a code camp after doing that road trip stop, and uh, it was it it totally measured up. Plus, we, we had, all got to beat awesome up on Mads, which was great. Yeah, we all got to beat <laughs> up on Mads. Well, actually, we were in the Midwest. Everybody was super nice. They were super polite. Yeah, <laughs> they beat up on him, but in a nice way, in a polite, polite way. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and I think it was the only time you'd ever been on the show, Robert. So I'm super excited to have you back doing a whole show yourself because you know your Thank stuff. You. Thank you. Excited to be back. HTTP two is it? Is it really only number the the second iteration of HTTP? It's really probably the fourth. Yeah, because it really started with uh, I guess dot nine dot nine right. Yep. And I was back in about 91 when Sir Tim Berners-Lee was first creating the web. And pretty basic back then, you could do a get and you could get an HTML file back. And that was about it. So 1.1 is where we are today. Yep, and have been, been stuck for a long time. We have been stuck yeah. for a long time, yeah. But it's amazing. I mean, I think back to that, you know, 1999, that, that's a long time. If you think of the kind of code that people write, having something that's around that's worldwide like that and mm. takes the kind of load and things that we do to it it's amazing that it's lasted for 15 years yeah it really has so if it's lasted so long because it's been so good why change it what's wrong with it well i think the major things you know that was built back in 1999 you probably had the html page and maybe 10 other resources on right. the page yeah and you go out to, I was out to HTTP Archive checking it out for the most recent, and web pages today average more than two megs and about 100 requests. And that's where the things start to kind of stretch what HTTP 1.1 was designed for. Hasn't JavaScript sort of picked up the slack, though, with all the asynchronous uh, calls and, and all of that stuff? 
Well, it certainly helped, but there's a number of problems with just the the core protocol for 1.1. So one of them was in the spec, they said you can use two back connections to each host. So when you come to my web server and you get the HTML, and let's say I have 25 images on that page you have to go get, originally the spec said the browser can open up two connections back to the server to try to get those two two of the images in parallel. Right. And, and it didn't take some time ago. Vendors. We just started violating the rule. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> it didn't take very long before a browser vendor said, you know, if I had four, <laughs> I'm gonna do twice as much in parallel. And so today they've kind of grown to about six per host. Yeah. Um, but you know that's using resources. Every connection you create for HTTP has to do the TCP connection. So you get a three-way handshake. If you're using uh, HTTPS, you've got another handshake. And TCP for each connection starts out in kind of a slow start mode where it's not willing to send a lot of stuff right away. So you're taking that penalty really across all six of those connections. Plus, yeah. you're using all the resources, you know, all the way from the client to the server. You're dedicating six different connections. So that's one of the issues with it. And does HTTP2 solve that problem? And if so, how? Yes, it does. And uh, that was one of the major things they wanted to solve. So they have actually brought it down to use just a single connection per host. And they're doing multiplex. Multiple requests and responses can be multiplexed on that single connection. So for those who don't know that word, tell us what that means. So the multiplex just means if you think of it in in the HTTP 1.1 timeframe on a connection, I could only have a single request going to the server and one response coming back. I couldn't issue multiple requests on the same connection. It was just make a request, wait for the response. So a multiplex then is stack up the requests and send them in one batch? Yeah, so I can send as many requests as I want. I don't have to wait. It's not a do your request, wait sort of situation. Right. I can issue a whole series of requests, and I'll actually get them back on that same connection, interleave. So I'm saving a lot of resources doing that. Mm. But it also solves uh, the head-of-line blocking problem that exists in 1.1. So yeah. if you think about those six connections, I make a request for a resource on one of those connections. If that is slow for some reason, I can't make another request on that connection. So effectively, right. until that one finishes... I'm denied the ability to use one-sixth of my um, connections back to the server. So that would become an issue just with those, any slow responses makes everything else back up and wait. Now, if you're dealing with, I mean, one of the upsides to that technique is if one of those connections is to an external resource. So say you're going to go get uh, the um, Google Analytics API, which is notoriously slow. Right. If you're working off one multiplex pipe, or is it even possible to have one multiplex pipe, one's going against my website, and it somehow also labels to go to Google, or is that a separate pipe? So the connections now for 2.0 are going to be one connection per host. So you're still able to open up another connection to because get the different Google host. Analytics. Yeah, right. But if a, you're using Google a, to get the analytics piece and to get jQuery and so forth, that would all be off that one pipe. Yeah, as long as they're from the same domain or same host, you'll share that connection. But the idea, again, is even when that, if that response for the one resource is really slow, because it's doing the multiplexing, the slowness doesn't impact any of your other requests or responses on that single connection. But And the Google Analytics is a JavaScript connection, too, right? That doesn't really, um, it does, once you have that connection, is 
I'm, I'm trying to figure out what is in the HTTP realm for the page and then what rules apply for JavaScript. Is it, is it all one connection per host per page? And well, how does so, that work? Yeah, so when you're talking about JavaScript, I mean, you're still going to have all the browser rules about the browser's going to still block when it makes a JavaScript connect. Yeah, In other right. words, it's not just going to go on and continue. You, you were ref, uh, referring to using async before. Mm-hmm. So I can do that today. I can say I want this to be async. But the connections in this case, it's not going to change how the browser is going to interpret and run those. Right. It's still so gonna, you have an image from HTML and you have another connection to the same host from JavaScript, those are still two connections. Well, no, those will be shared. So for instance, on oh, my really? website, yeah, you get you ask for the HTML and I've got CSS, I've got JavaScript, I've got web fonts, I've got you know, images, all of those things to that one host will share just a single connection. But again, because of the multiplexing, it's splitting up all the frames for those connections. Right. So they're not impacting each other at all. So if on mm-hmm. the back end, you're actually, you know, there's different resources feeding it out. They, they could come back on different rates and you don't care. It's one connection through the firewall right. the, and the pipe's just filling up as quickly as it can. Right. So the good news is now instead of, with only six connections, if those are all busy and I'm waiting for responses, if you've ever watched like the waterfall when you go into yeah. something like Fiddler and you can see kind of how it steps six at a time, yep. that kind of stuff doesn't have to happen anymore because I, as I issue all my requests, it's going to interleave those responses. And, and we'll talk a little bit about how they've um, added in prioritization and stuff too. So one of the other issues with 1.1 is... The browser has no way to really say one thing is more important than the other. Right, so, right. Yeah, when it gets my HTML, it says, oh, I see you have CSS, I see you have images, I see you have JavaScript. It has to use kind of its own heuristics and say, I've only got six connections. I probably want to get the CSS first so I can start getting the basic page layout and give yeah. the perception that the page is um, Well, and also and avoid re-renders. right. So the faster it gets that, and it doesn't have to do reflows, but today all it can really do is say, I'm going to use one of my connections for the CSS. They can't really say, I want these things in a specific order. And now yeah. in 2.0, they actually have the ability with the streams, they call them, where they can actually put dependencies on them, and they can also put weights on them. So if we run through that scenario in the 2 world, I can say, I want to get the I get the HTML. I really want the CSS first, so I can say let's make that the first thing the server puts its resources toward. When that's done, maybe I want jQuery next, right? If all my JavaScript's going to depend on jQuery. So the browser can set up a dependency tree. It's really a set of hints to the server, and it can send that along and say, ideally give me the stuff in this order because right. that's how I'm going to best use this page. That's way smarter. Mm. Yeah, that is. And one of the cool things I saw with it is, um, this will take us back a few years, if you guys remember progressive JPEGs? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so years ago, when you know, I've been doing this for a long time, we were on <laughs> modems. Yeah. And in order to get perceived speed, if you take a JPEG today, uh, it will paint kind of line by line as it comes down. Mm-hmm. A progressive instead will say, I'm going to put the whole shell of the image first, but make it kind of fuzzy. Yeah. But if you do that, what you can do, if you've got a page with a bunch of images and you use progressive, you'll see them all come onto the page really quickly. So the perception is, wow, it's really fast. It's really done. 
but it's actually still doing some more downloads to improve the quality. Yeah, so I've the- seen some modern versions of that, especially with like retina level displays where it's like the picture looked good and a little while later it looked really good. Yeah, really sure. good. Yeah. But- so there's a kind of a resurgence of progressive JPEGs and, and that making sense in today's world again. And one of the cool things uh, about the prioritization and some of that control with hinting, and I haven't heard anybody actually implement this, but they've been talking about why not go to the server and ask to make it a high priority to get just the very beginning of all these progressive JPEGs so we can get that basic layout and kind of fuzzy picture, then deprioritize those requests, get our JavaScript and other stuff that we want quickly, and then fall back later and say, now let's get the rest of them and make the quality better. I thought it was my eyes the whole time. You know? You, you know, while you're saying this, I'm thinking, oh, I would do that with this coding strategy. And I do that, this coding, like all my strange loop experience, because we did all kinds of optimizations like this. But I realize you bury so much of your page in this clever code. And yep. you're just saying, here's a manifest. Do it in this order, please. Yep. And we, we used to use Speedy as well, that uh, a Google uh, protocol. And I guess now they're saying it's not going to be supported in HTTP2? Is that because HTTP2 sort of does what Speedy does? Yeah, so from the history standpoint, uh, it's kind of interesting. A a couple uh, engineers at Google basically started out and said, really, what matters more, uh, bandwidth or latency? And so they, they did a study where they took 25 of the most popular web pages, and they varied either the bandwidth or the latency. And so they went through this whole... Um, simulation and what they found was latency wins latency wins and (laughs) it's funny i learned this so when i was first at work uh, we had mobile handhelds that we have all over the country that need to send data back to corporate over satellites and they set one in front of me and said we don't know how this thing talks to our mainframe uh figure it out and this will bring back memories for you richard they brought over a protocol analyzer which if Mm -hmm. you've ever seen one think of stacking about three or four laptops on top of each other. Yep. It's about big that box. big. And there's a handle with a little screen on it. And you'd hook your, you know, plug in your serial port into your mobile device. Yep. And I could watch this protocol because it wasn't documented. So I was watching everything go back and forth. And you really learn quickly what latency means when you're talking over a satellite. Because yep. everything that you send, you know, the protocol was set up where I would send a packet and you wait for half a second at least yep. before you get an act 600 back. milliseconds. Yep. And so that really hit me early that, you know, there's definitely places where bandwidth matters, right? If I'm sure. doing streaming video and things like that, that's a different story. And but the I, point I know I've told the story on the show before, but, you know, the, this is geostationary satellites because the speed of light is hard to beat. And uh, if you're sending, you know, you're doing 1K CRC. So you send up, a, you, you get a K and then you send back to CRC for confirmation and sends you the next K. It doesn't matter you have a 500 megabit connection when it's 600 milliseconds every exactly. time. Yeah. Yep. We it, actually I mean, ended up extending our protocol then to, we put in sliding windows like yep. TCP has. So you could get around that and it's, you know, you could send basically have eight or 10 or 12 frames in flight so that you minimize that latency. So what this team did once they saw that, they said, let's start talking about how to improve the web Mm -hmm. with a focus on minimizing latency. And so that's really how Speedy was born. So that started in like 2009. Yeah. 
And they had a couple goals. They said they wanted to do a single connection like we've been talking about. The other one we didn't talk about is HTTP 1.1 does not compress your headers. So yes. when you make a request, you know, we've been using compression for years to minimize how much is sent back to the client. But the headers that go back and forth were just never part of the protocol to be compressed. And the bad thing about that is not only are they big sometimes, especially if you have cookies in them, mm. but the bad news is you keep sending them with every request. Well, so that's, yeah, remember view state? Talk about a yes. big header. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so that's... And just to be clear, speedy thing. is S-P-D-Y. It's an acronym. Yes. Yeah. And so they wanted to do some header compression. Uh, they wanted to do prioritization like we talked about. They wanted to do something called server push, which we'll get into. So they started doing it, Google did, and started rolling it out in both Chrome and a lot of their properties. And they were seeing some uh, nice performance benefits and behaviors from doing that. And so when that was going on, the IETF was starting to notice and say, you know, we want to do another version of HTTP. Uh, let's take a look. So they did a call for proposals and they ended up selecting Speedy then as the baseline for what was going to become HTTP 2. And not to toot my horn too hard here, but back in 2011, Strange Loop with our acceleration appliance was the very first third party company to implement Speedy. Isn't that cool? That's awesome. Yeah. So it was, you know, cause you had to run Google's back end if you wanted to run speedy. So here's like, nah, put our appliance in front. We'll do all the communication and we'll talk speedy out to the rest of the world. Hmm. It worked. Cool. Yeah. So they, nice. that's kind of where that started. And then, like I said, the IETF said, we don't, we don't want to be in a situation. And Google said this too. We're not trying to make the new web standard. They said, we wanted to do this because we wanted to get some practical experience with things that we're experimenting with and then feed that into the HTTP2 process. So the good news for us, when HTTP2 has finally now been standardized, I can feel a lot better about this has really been running like this on some major properties for a long time. You can't say right. that about a lot of protocols that come out. No. And it, I think it's one of the reasons that HTTP has moved so slowly is you're talking about something so fundamental to the web You've got to get both ends to play all of the time to for this to make any difference. Right. Yep. And they and people are pretty resistant. This is just a very hard thing. It's like we're going to change the you know the voltage of electricity. All right. Like right. You, there's a reason we're still using 120 uh, volts in in North America because it's not actually a great voltage. It's because right. it's that hard to change the standard. And so that was one of the important things, you know, when they went through HTTP2 and Speedy, they said, you know, we know there's a lot of stuff out there on the web. We are going to keep the HTTP 1.1 semantics the same. So right. we don't want to change the methods you use, uh, the response codes. They basically said we really want it to be more of a plumbing sort of change yeah. where you can pick up your app. So this is the good news. I can change my infrastructure to run HTTP2 and pop my app that runs today, and it will run on HTTP2. That was one of their goals, because they said, like Richard said, it's going to take forever otherwise yeah. to get this thing rolled out. Well, I would argue the, it already has taken forever. I mean, this is ridiculous how long it's yes, taken to, to yes. deal with this. And so I think that was a, a good choice on their part. So we, the good news, like I said, we can just pick up our site and run it over there. We'll talk through that it will certainly work. But now that these changes have been made for HTTP2, uh, we won't want to just do that. In other words, you might do that just to get it to run. But there's a lot of new techniques that we could take advantage of in HTTP2 because of some of their features that will want to stop doing 
for instance, there's a lot of performance techniques that, you know, Richard and I have been doing on sites for a long time that we want to stop doing. There's a whole group we want to continue, but there's ones that just don't make sense uh, with the new HTTP2 world. Yeah. Well, and I'm looking at the W3 text page that does continuous updates of HTTP2 stats. And so, you know, they, the reference material was from October that said it was like 1.9% of websites were using HTTP2. And I'm checking it today, today being November 12th. So just a month later, it's at 2.1%. Right. And the it's, good news is that all, all the major browsers support it. So we've got at least the client side of HTTP2 is pretty well supported today. Now it's just more the servers and the other places that we have to start uh, putting those in place with HTTP2. So yeah, once you start, well, it, it gets always a question of what are the what are the web servers that are going to need to implement HTTP2 to, to actually make a dent in this? I mean, I think the cloud's going to make our life way easier. You're not right. going to get to choose what protocol Azure websites uses. They're just going to implement it one day. Yep. Yep. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Must be that happy time again. Yep, it's time to announce Richard's and my new browser for seniors. It's called oh. Slowy. <laughs> That's right. Now your mom will never be confused by screens changing so fast and confusing her. Not only does Slowy bring your web traffic to a crawl, but it also slows down your entire PC, so they'll never accidentally move files into nearby directories and zip files just because mom has a slight tremor. <laughs> Use you know, Slowly's extreme mode to completely lock up her system. <laughs> I was going to say, I've been to some by. sites that apparently already use that, Carl. Void so. where prohibited by law. Isn't yeah. Slowly actually spelt A-O-L? <laughs> 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 Did I say that out loud? That's not right. <laughs> uh, spot on, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong, though, my friend. No, no. You know, these things get so fast they confuse people. Oh, well. It's actually time to give away a Component One Studio Enterprise to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about Component One's .NET controls for professional developers. Whether you're building the most modern touch-enabled apps or maintaining and updating legacy apps, Component One's flagship product, Studio Enterprise, helps to deliver rich, responsive desktop and web apps on time and under budget. Check them out at ComponentOne.com, and don't forget to thank them for sporting dotnet rocks absolutely all right buddy who's our winner today's winner is glenn spinks congratulations glenn golf yeah. clap for you sir glenn just won the component one studio enterprise that's like a two thousand dollar value right there it's a big mm -hmm. package from component one and if you don't know what we just did go to dotnet rocks.com click on the big get free stuff button answer a few questions and join the dotnet rocks fan club we have thousands of members all over the world and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors and every december coming up here soon we give away a five thousand dollar technology shopping spree to that one is imminent 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 to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you got to sign up to win. And of course, now it's your turn, Robert. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? So I thought about this a lot. Uh, I personally have what I need and I'm happy with. I've got lots of devices and stuff that I use, but my daughter has just recently been getting into programming. So she's been doing some of the Hour of Code website. Yeah. And She's just started doing, she went to that conference this summer and did a, a session on that for kids. 
Great. And she did one last weekend at South Dakota Code Camp. So I, I would spend the 5000 on uh, educational things for her and for her to be able to share with other kids. So we looked at, there's one called Sphero, if you've seen that, hmm. where it's just a little ball that the kids can program. And so, yeah, that was the, the robot from uh, the new Star Wars, right? Yeah, yep. Yep. And so they have an education pack for, I think it's around $2,000. So just something that would, I'm really excited that she's getting interested in programming. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of different things that she can do. I've seen like the jewel bots. Uh, Ozo bots are kind of cool where you can draw with markers on a piece of paper mm-hmm. and you draw different colored markers and it makes them do certain things. So if you do a red, blue, green sequence, it'll spin. So just being able to teach kids how to program in such an accessible way when they're young is really cool. And mm. with that Sphero kit, it would give her the ability to um, host sessions with other kids because she likes to work with other people and show them things. It'd be cool to get a pack like that and, and let the kids have at it and just see how they program. Uh, I got to think wonderful for, thing. for five grand, you can get a lot of Sphero kits. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of that. And like I said, the, the, there's a lot of bots. There's a lot of different ways to teach kids to code. Uh, Lego Mindstorms. Yeah. Get her a 3D printer. It's just she's right at the right age where she's ex- excited about it. So that's where I would invest that. And how old money. is she again? She's 13. Perfect. Perfect timing. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, this is such a big topic. Uh, and I, I also think a Clark Cell up at that conference, like his kids track is turning into its own conference. Because, te- you know, the most effective people to teach kids is other kids. Yep. Hey, Robert, you mentioned streams before as being a, a real fundamental feature of HTTP2. Can we talk, can we open that up a little bit more? Sure. What exactly? I mean, I know what a stream is that in, you know, in programming, it's a pretty understandable concept, but how does it map to HTTP2? Yeah. So within HTTP2, the stream is really a single request and response, but the important part of the streams was really just the ability to do that uh, dependency and the waiting and to be able to adjust it on the fly. Because, so that okay, was so even though you're yeah. doing a multiplex request, you have to decouple or decompose that into streams? Yeah, so response. as I'm actually sending, I mean, the end result of the changes to HTTP2 is they're doing different binary frames that they're sending on that uh, multiplex connection. So if you watch with like a Wireshark, you'd see all of these frames for different streams, you know, different requests and responses that you have pending are all going over that connection at once, hopefully in the order that you had asked for based on your dependency tree. All right. And um, did we talk about, uh, you talked about compression before, header compression. What about server push? So the server push is kind of one of the more interesting areas, I think, of HTTP2. And the idea is, when somebody requests my HTML page, I send it back to the client. We know the client's going to parse it and ask for my JavaScript, my CSS. You know, as the page developer, I know what they're going to turn around and ask for as mm-hmm. soon as they get the response. So mm-hmm. the idea with server push is, let's get away from this round trip wasted for me to go. Let you know, here's the HTML. Wait for it to go to the client. Wait for it to do its parsing, just to come back and ask for me for what I probably already know that it needs. So the idea of the server push is uh, there's various APIs. So ASP.NET has uh, HTTP response.push promise where I can go now and actually programmatically say, 
I want to tell the client that I'm going to send it the CSS file. So I'm basically proactively saying, I know what's already going to be in here that you're going to ask for. Rather than wait for you to do a round trip and ask me for it, I'm going to start sending these push promises to you and say, here's my combined CSS file, my JavaScript file. You know, here's some key resources that I want you to get right away. So if you mm. think of it, I like the term somebody used. It's really better inlining. So oh, today, yeah. a lot of people are doing inlining. So if you've, you know, one thing would be like uh, data URIs, where people are taking images, base64, encoding them, and sticking them into their HTML. And they're doing that to reduce the number of requests that go back and forth to the server. The idea of the server push is there, there's some bad things about inlining all of your stuff into the HTML. Uh, so another thing people are doing to really eke out performance and get the perception of a fast page paint, they're actually taking the CSS you need to show what, you know, I guess you would call still above the fold is what people would refer to it as. But the main content I want to show, I want to have that render really quickly. So they're actually inlining the CSS necessary for that mm -hmm. directly into the HTML today. And nice. while that's okay, the bad part is it's making my page weight bigger Yeah, and, and I can't cache that stuff. If I do right. a push promise, what it'll do is it'll say, I'm going to send you this CSS without you having to come back and ask for it. And then it'll allow it to be cached still. So I'll still get all the advantages of caching but I didn't have to wait for that round trip for the client to ask me for it. Hey, what happens to HTTPS? Is there any uh, more, uh, shall we say, performant options in HTTP2? So one of the things was during the actual standardization process, there was a lot of debate about whether HTTPS should be required or not. Oh, and required? It turned out, yeah, so they actually said... One of the debates was, should we just say, you have no choice, you have to use HTTPS? Mm. So they went back and forth a lot on it, and there were concerns about smaller websites not being up to speed on how to do that. So the actual standard says you don't have to use HTTPS. Okay. However, both Chrome and Firefox came out and said, you have to. We're not going to implement HTTP2 without HTTPS. Wow. And one of the reasons was uh, Google, when they were doing the speedy, and this is one of those thanks for testing this ahead of time, they actually found with when they didn't use HTTPS, they only got about 70 or 80% of their communications to actually succeed. Hmm. And, and the reason was because all of these middle boxes that we've got all over the internet, you know, all the proxy servers, right. all the other things, they're watching this traffic and they were thinking, this kind of looks familiar. So I'm going to mess around with this header. Or, you know, they'd start tweaking with things that were HTTP2 because they didn't understand them. Right. Uh, they, th they were trying to do uh, proxy caching and, and right. things. I mean, they're trying to help, really. Right. <laughs> and what ended up happening was because they didn't understand the changes with two, you know, it ended up being a failure rate of 20 to 30%, which obviously isn't going to work. So that was one of the major reasons why they said, we don't think it's going to succeed and mm. so Speedy then said, we're only using HTTPS, so now Chrome and Firefox are basically pushing the issue by saying, we're not going to implement it without HTTPS. Do so we, effectively, yeah, do, do we it. Do we wrap up Speedy by saying um, that the that Speedy isn't supported in HTTP2 because the what Speedy does is essentially in HTTP2? Yeah, so really, Speedy, 
what's interesting with Speedy is HTTP2 group took it as the basis for HTTP2. Yeah. It kept continuing. There's still newer versions of Speedy because they mm. basically treated it like, we'll be the experimental wing for the things that you want to do okay. in HTTP2. Right. And so now what's happened is Google has come and publicly announced and said, now that we have HTTP2, we are going to deprecate Speedy. You know, we never intended it to be what people used in production all the time. We didn't want this to be a de facto standard. So they're deprecating that in early 2016 because they said, we now have a standardized HTTP2. Let's all, let's all use that. And anybody who's willing to go through the work to implement Speedy in the niche way that it was done is going to be perfectly willing to make HTTP happen. Right. Um, and I, you know, what's interesting is if you encrypt everything all the time, you know, we built all that stuff out in the web to make websites faster. Like you are taking away a big part of some of the acceleration techniques using localized caching and so forth on the backbone. Right. Hopefully that's not, you know, how bad is that going to be? I, it's just really interesting to think about one of the consequences here. Right. So I just saw, I think it was this morning, Nginx had a paper out about a lot of the testing they've done with HTTP2. And, and they said, if you're not using HTTPS now and you switch to HTTP2, from what they saw, it was kind of a wash. And in other words, you didn't get some of the performance improvements you would expect because you have that slight overhead from HTTPS. Right. Although, I mean, it's, it's pretty slight. Right. I would hope that the, the TLS handshake in HTTP2 is smarter then HTTP 1.1. It's just not a, it, it was an add on. This is built from the outset to use TLS. Right. And now they've done some extensions to make that better. And then going forward, now post HTTP 2, there's more discussions about how could we potentially even make that a shorter handshake, which is really your opportunity to save on that initial connection. I mean, the good news from my standpoint is. Because you have one connection, at least you're only taking whatever penalty we have now once. once instead of six times. Yeah. Which is good. But, you know, that being said, if you take an existing HTTP 1.1 site, probably, let's say, already using TLS, so it's already encrypted, and you just implement the web server that supports HTTP 2, I don't what benefits are you really going to see cuz you haven't done any of the manifest stuff like you haven't implemented any of the things or more relevantly taken out any of that stuff that you did for other optimization in 1.1 right and the things i've seen for that said if you just you know this is on average right your mileage will vary right. but on average taking just a 1.1 one, one and putting on a 2 they they've seen anywhere from 5 to 15% performance improvement okay yeah, just because of the lack of, you know, needing to spin up extra connections and such, it ends up panning out to be about that for most people. And it'll make more difference for busier sites, without a doubt. Right, and I think the, the key part is, you know, we're, we're seeing this on our site too, the mobile usage is crossing over desktop. Now, when you start mm. talking about mobile, latency is so much worse in mobile networks than it right. is from a desktop perspective, that the more that we can do to help mobile devices get a better experience and anything we can do to get around this latency and not having to do all, you know five extra connections with all that overhead is a big win specifically in that area you know well, any, and that's mostly because carriers are pure evil um actually i'm being i will always be unkind to carriers i'm never going to take that back because carriers are pretty evil but uh 
their networking problem is a really interesting problem because you do have a network connection that's roving around from node to node. Like, that's just not an easy thing to cope with. Right. Yep. And uh, over on the run-ass side, we had a really great show talking to Ed Horley about IPv6 where he's saying, you know, the carriers, the cell carriers are pressing against IPv6 way harder than your typical ISP because their networking problems are so bad that they can't gnat their way out of this. And the part of this is the way that mobile devices handle uh, the communicating websites. It's It's a problem. Right. Hey, what's uh, HTTP2 binary all about? Is it just what you think it is? Yeah, so the binary was just the underlying, you know, HTTP up till now has always been a text-based protocol. And so now they've changed the underlying plumbing to be binary framing instead of text-based. Is that so they can compress it further? Well, part of the argument was they said one of the major benefits will be it'll be easier to write a protocol, a binary protocol than a text space. Just the things you have to deal with when you're an implementer for dealing with text, like there's many different ways to represent new lines or spaces or sure. you know, all of those things come into play. Creating it from a binary perspective is just going to be easier for them to implement. It does make you wonder about what happens to JSON in HTTP2. Well, binary doesn't necessarily mean that view source, you see ones and zeros, does it? I mean, by the time it gets to the browser, it's still a text representation, isn't it? Right. Yeah, by the time the browser's going to see it, you know, again, this will all be foundational things that won't impact us at that layer. I mean, by the time it gets back to me, I'm still going to have text-based JSON string in my browser. I'm, I'm thinking about Wireshark. Yes, yes. And Wireshark's one of the few network monitors now that is interpreting HTTP2. Right. So, I mean, it, it would have to parse it. You'd have to do the same thing that the browser's going to do. Just and untangle it for you. And it'd yep. obviously have a easier time. Although right. everything's TLS, so now you're asking Wireshark to also terminate TLS for you, possibly even behave man in the middle. <laughs> yes. Mm. Yep. All and that's right. another, you know, I use Fiddler all the time. Yeah. yeah. And so but with Fiddler talking. is your endpoint. It's just letting you see what yep. the browser sees. So I've been talking with Eric uh, Lawrence about it, and he said one of the problems is that there's some of the .NET framework pieces don't yet support what he needs for HTTP2. Wow. Hmm. So we really need that because I use Fiddler every day. Yeah, yeah. no, and that under, the underlying for that is WinINet. Or right. Azure. I mean, what, what do we have to do to get HTTP2 in an Azure website, for example? So I know that going forward, from a Microsoft standpoint, they support HTTP2 starting with IIS 10, which is so much, I have Windows 10, you know, mm -hmm. on my laptop, so it already supports it, so I can do testing with it, and that'll be part of Windows Server 2016. Right. So oh, and there will they, be no IIS 9, just like there's no right. Windows 9. It'll, I guess right. it'll make its way into Azure then. Right. I'm so sure as that makes it into Azure, now where I'm really looking forward to it is uh, from the CDN perspective. So I already host all of my static resources on a CDN. Mm. Right. I've done that for years, you know, closer to my customer. Mm -hmm. So I get the speed advantage. I don't w use all that bandwidth into my data center. So literally you get the HTML from me, you get everything else from my CDN. Right. What I want is my CDN is where you're making the multiple requests, right? You know, if I did HTTP2 and all you ask for is one page, I'm not going to gain a lot in my data center. 
I'm in a game where my CDN, where you have to come and get 25 images and stuff, that's where you, you're taking advantage of the, you don't have that limit of six connections anymore. Yeah. So I'm look, yeah, I'm really looking forward to as the CDNs and some of them are starting to do it as they implement HTTP2, then I kind of, my strategy will be, I want to detect when you come to my website, are you using HTTP1 or HTTP2? And I'll make decisions then about what I'm going to serve to you differently. So I'll choose to serve, if you have HTTP2 enabled, I'm going to serve you HTTPS for all of my static resources. Then from your browser to the CDN, it'll use HTTP2 and get all those advantages from that standpoint, if that makes sense. So there's yeah. there's a lot of uh, performance improvements. So if we're doing our own performance improvements, and indeed Richard made a company around performance improvements hardware, but if, you know, most developers are already doing things that improve performance, if we're using HTTP2, do those things become redundant and not useful? So some of them do. So one of the ones that we did, you know, maybe three years ago was we bundled all of our JavaScript into a single file. Yep. And we bundle all of our CSS into a single file. Yeah. And when we did that, we cut our homepage time in half. Yep. I mean, big deal. And it wasn't a lot of work. Um, but now since HTTP2, I want to be careful I say this, they've effectively made it where making multiple requests to a single host really isn't a problem anymore because of that multiplex connection. Right. So there, the argument is, why would I want to bundle anymore? Yeah, you know, why do I need script manager anymore? Right. And, you know, like I said, it was easy for us to do, but it's still a hassle. You know, I mean, it's still something that I have to do that I shouldn't have to do. Yeah. And if I change one thing in a JavaScript file, you know, one single character, my whole bundle, you know, I've got it right. set up with expirations today. So it's kept in your browser cache. You don't have to come back for anything. I changed that one small file, and instead of getting that one small file, I've, I have to invalidate my whole bundle. Right. What about minifying? So, do we still need to do that? We still want to minify. So I think, I mean, if I were to list out what, here's the performance stuff I'd stop doing. Mm -hmm. They Most of them are all around things that you did to reduce the number of requests. Right, so right. bundling, um, not doing CSS sprites anymore where you shove all the little images into one big image and kind of index into it. Uh, people have been doing domain sharding for a while, which was, hey, you know, if I've got a host name and I can have six connections per host, why don't I just make another host name? Yeah. Or, or two or three, you know. Every time I made a new host name to refer to my resources, I got six more connections. Well, that's awesome, right? I go from six to 18 or whatever, and a lot of people do that. Uh, that won't be necessary anymore either. Yeah. And then if server push works out the way we hope, people won't have to do the inlining stuff like data URIs or folding in your uh, CSS and JavaScript into the page just so that you don't have to make requests. So those kind of all go yeah. away. What you were talking about, you still want to minify. So if I look at the other side, the things that you still want to do, you still want to reduce the size of the stuff you send to clients. And minification is yeah. a great way to do that. So we're still going to minify. We're still going to compress. You know, HTTP compressions built into web servers. It's simple. Cut our bandwidth in half. You know, it's faster for our customers. Um, we're still going to use expirations, which is another key one, mm -hmm. where I say you can download my file and keep it in your cache for a year or 30 days or whatever, so you don't even have to come back and ask for it. Um, using a CDN will still be a huge win. 
and then uh, optimizing your images is always so important. I mean, that's probably one of the major mistakes I see yep. people not do today. If you go out to HTTP Archive, they're still saying 63% of all of your download weight is images. When you, see a, a, when you see a thumbnail redrawing itself and you think, did I install Slowy? Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and then could, a, the thumbnail turns out to be a four gigabyte image. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny and sad at the same time. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, it's, but all, it's all too accurate. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know how many times I've talked to, especially designers, and said, we really want to optimize this, you know, and they kind of freak out about, oh, I'm going to lose quality. And so I, I, I pull up a page that has the same image, you know, nine or 12 times at different compression ratios. <laughs> And I say, pick the one that's the best. Yeah. And so they'll go through and pick, and, and rarely do they actually pick the one. They'll often pick one that's you know seventy five percent smaller, but sure. you've traded off that quality for size, and the quality you've done still they you can't tell that you know, last one percent. That last one percent JPEG quality is really unnecessary, isn't it? Right. And yeah. stripping out metadata. All, so all of that kind of stuff around reducing size of things absolutely still makes sense. You still want to do all of that. It's really more the things we did specifically to avoid requests okay. to a single host goes away. You know, it occurs to me that in during this transition period, implementing HTTP2, we're going to make web pages bigger. Oh, geez. Yeah, you're right. Well, we, now, I guess what I was planning to do, Richard, I was hoping to do is I was talking about that detection if I can tell if you're one one, I'm going to keep bundling for you. you right. know, I'm going to, I, I've already got all my bundling in place. That's easy to leave, and I've already got it unbundled for my developers. So that you know, until I do a release build, it'll be easy for me to say if you're using one one, I'm still going to do the spriting and the bundling because I don't want you to go backwards the day I do this. What's that yeah. law, Richard, that says all software will expand to fill all available memory? <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the laws of software. All right, what's HPAC, and why do I care? So HPAC is the header compression that we were talking about earlier. So now the idea is today, if I go back to the same host asking for multiple files, I'm sending like, here's my user agent string. You mm -hmm. know, I support deflate. All those headers that are the same for every request. The idea with HPAC is they're going to, they have a, what's called a static table of the well-known headers that are usually sent, like get for the homepage using mm -hmm. HTTP. Instead of sending those strings, we're going to use the index number from the table. So for instance, I'll say, I want to do a get. Maybe that's number two. So I'm going to, the first request I make to you is going to be smaller because I'm not going to send the full strings. I'm using just a small number to say, this is the header that I'm referring to. It's a well-known header. Okay. They also are using Huffman encoding to actually compress things like the user agent string. You know, the things that wouldn't be common that are just defined everywhere. Right. So you get that benefit. And then on subsequent requests, you don't have to resend even that compressed stuff, right? If user agent isn't changing, mm. I can just say, here's the number, that's what I gave you last time. And both the server and the client will keep these uh, tables in memory for the connection to keep up with what have we done so far for headers so that as we transmit it, we don't have to send as much stuff. So how much do you think HTTP2 improves overall performance over just using HTTP 1.1 with Speedy? So the stuff I've seen it, it's roughly 5 to 15%. If okay. you just, like what Richard was saying, if you're just taking apples for apples, same site, just plop it on and not do the 
you know, changes that we talked about from a performance standpoint, the measurements and research I've seen so far is five to 15%. But then you start implementing manifests and, you know, taking advantage of some of the other things and, and you should get more performance benefits from right. there and certainly better rendering effects. Right. So, you know, and all the other benefits of not having to do the bundling work and not expiring your whole bundle. And so, yeah, once I undo the things I've been teaching people for the last who knows how many years, yeah. <laughs> once I undo that stuff, it'll be interesting to see what kind of lift I'm going to get from being on 2.0 without the stuff. I mean, basically using 2.0 the right way. It'll be you interesting. Get back to the same problem up. of I'm going to make my page bigger. I'm going to start adding this HTTP2 capability. If I remove the old stuff, then people who are still on 1.1 are going to get an inferior experience, which maybe that'll encourage them to move up to a, quote, real browser. Right. I, yeah. I mean, I almost wonder if who's not using a browser supports HTTP2 by the end of this year. Yeah, and I don't know. It, it's interesting if some of that might be proxy servers and stuff, too, as they're acting in the middle if they don't get upgraded, even though the end client browser is. Right. You know, it may still not be talking that way to my server. But yeah, that's well, kind especially of, when you start talking about proxy caches, where you may not even know that this cache has been helping your site. Right. Yep. You know, that's really interesting problem. But that happens as soon as you implement a TLS anyway. Right. Well, this is all very exciting. Um, Richard, what do you think? I think this is long overdue. You know, Speedy never caught on. It was only for a few niche sites. Like it never went anywhere near as far as it ought to have gone. But it would. So but it works, right? It did work. Right, it just was you, the back end was too hard to implement. Yeah. And now that you've got a standard, all the browsers have already implemented. If you're using a current generation browser, you're already running it. Now the web servers start to flop. Robert Bodigheimer, thanks a lot for sharing this with us. Well, thank you for having me. All right, we'll see you next time on Dot Networks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a